Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the wonderful Gabor Mate, a friend and brilliant doctor who is the author of many incredible books about healing and addiction, including his latest, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. Chili Pad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. Where in your life are you not saying yes? Where there's a yes that wants to be said? Where there's some desire for self-expression or creativity or way of being that you're stifling because you're trying to stay in attachment relationship rather than being yourself. So where are you still choosing attachment over authenticity if the two are in conflict? Now, ideally, we'll form relationships with partners and spouses and families and friends where we can have both authenticity and attachment. But if that's not possible, this is the challenge for all of us. What are we going to choose? Are we still going to choose the attachment? Or we're going to go for authenticity. And I'll tell you, health-wise, we pay a huge price if we go for the attachment. 
by surrendering authenticity. And so as we say in the book, the loss of authenticity, inauthenticity may not have been a choice to the child. It's not like they had a choice in the matter, but authenticity can be a choice. So says Dr. Gabor Mate, renowned physician and four-time best-selling author who joins me today to discuss his newest book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. With over four decades of clinical experience, Gabor is a sought-after expert on addiction, trauma, childhood development, and unraveling the relationship between stress and illness. In his new book, he brilliantly dissects our understanding of normal, exploring the role of trauma, stress, and societal pressures on our mental and physical well-being. Chronic diseases are not interruptions to our lives, but rather manifestations of how we live, Gabor tells us. Very few diseases are genetically predetermined, he says, emphasizing that it is our environment that brings any genetic predispositions we may have to fruition. Starting in childhood, when we begin to disconnect from our authentic selves in order to maintain attachment relationships, most of us live a life where some combination of trauma, emotional pain, and separation from self play a major yet unexplored role. Without a grounding in trauma-informed study, Western medicine often fails to treat the core wounds that make us sick, leaving us vulnerable to mental illness, autoimmune disease, and addiction. When we recognize our maladies not as independent identities, but as bodily expressions of mental suppressions, we can become empowered adults who choose to rediscover an authentic self we lost somewhere along the way. It is only through self-retrieval, Dr. Mate shares, that we can truly begin healing. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Wow, what an amazing offering this book is. Wow. wow. Thank you for doing it. I tell you, it means a lot to hear you say so because, well, it just does. I, 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 here's what I want to ask you. I know, the ideas that I present, I'm a, a thousand percent confident about, you know? I have yeah. no doubt whatsoever. How is it as a read? I thought, and this is why I think it's it's such an incredible gift. It is, well, you're a beautiful writer. And so it does, you know, it's, I know that's a natural skill for you and a deaf storyteller. So it really moves with a lot of pace. Mm -hmm. It's a big book, but I read it on a beach, which is not where you would think about reading a book like that. Typical summer reading. (laughs) Typical summer read. But it speaks to the fact that it was riveting and I could completely follow you and all of your arguments. And I think you did an exceptional job of layering in the research and your anecdotal experience and your own story in a way that's very consumable, compelling. And I made 15 pages of notes. So I feel like I almost retyped the whole. (laughs) Mm. Thank you. That's, That's so great to hear. Thank you. I think I've read all of your books, including your book with with Gordon. Yeah. On parenting, and so it was also really amazing to how you built on all of yeah. you. It was an aggregation of all of your work yeah. and a building on it with while not repeating yourself. Yeah. So great. But you could just tell that you had also spent a lot of time going through it. That it had been well edited and revised and clarified and clarified and clarified. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> Do you know that originally we we turned in a manuscript of twice as long as this one. Wow. And then we had to not just cut, 
but move and rewrite and rewrite and clarify and rewrite and edit and rewrite. It went to quite a few layers. So from that point of view, it's it's our work, but it does also reflect the wonderful editing that we got, which yeah. originally I my tendency is to resent it, you know, like what you you know, but but then you know they were right ninety-five percent of the time. Oh yeah. So I don't know if you remember this, but I emailed you last summer. Maybe this is a good place to start. I emailed you last summer to check in and to tell you I was going to do a podcast and to ask you to come on. And you told me about this book. And then you said, how are you? I know, and I, I responded. I, 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 I know you told me all about your husband. <laughs> and I responded, he is doing really well. Love. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. So did you learn anything? Yeah. Did you learn anything? <laughs> Well, you did a gentle intervention on me, yeah. which, and then I did it, I did it like two more times. I know. It I was know. really interesting. That has stuck with me. And as you say, that is maybe an excellent articulation of, of what happens to a lot of women socially where our immediate yeah. impact is to talk about everyone else yeah. and how they're doing rather than yeah. the vulnerability of answering that question for ourselves, right? That's right. <laughs> It's, uh, it's not just the vulnerability, it's also the uh, the culturally entrained and then self-assumed responsibility, not even to go there, you know? Yeah. I mean, because ironically, women are far more open about talking about their feelings than men are. Uh, right. It, it's only that culturally, whether they talk about their feelings or whether they don't, their duty is, first of all, to attend to the feelings of others. Yeah. And that takes a, as the book shows, that takes a heavy toll, in both in terms of what we call mental illness and also in physical health. Yeah. I, let's start there. I think, you know, you presented this list early on in the book where I think this is a list of maybe personality or behavior traits that you observe in chronically ill, I don't know if it's people or women, but it's an automatic and compulsive concern for the emotional needs of others while ignoring yeah. one's own. Yeah. Rigid identification with social role, duty, and responsibility. Overdriven, externally focused, multitasking, hyper-responsibility based on the conviction that one must justify one's existence by doing and giving. Repression of healthy self-protective aggression and anger. And harboring and compulsively acting out two beliefs. I am responsible for how other people feel, and I must never disappoint anyone. Yes. Oh, Gabor, I feel like... I read that list. I might have cried. It's such a, a stunning, <laughs> a stunning and sad encapsulation. And is this gender? Does this primarily women, or do you just see this with anyone who assumes that caretaking role? Well, it, it's not just it's not purely gender determined, but at the same time, there's a reason why eighty percent of the people with autoimmune disease are women. There's a reason why women get more non-smoking-related cancers than men do. There's a reason why a woman who smokes has double the risk of lung cancer than a man who smokes. Mm. And it's because those characteristics that are not itself, they're not biologically determined. They're not as such gender determined, but in this patriarchal society, they're thrust upon one gender more than, than others. And therefore, that's why women take twice as much antidepressants and, and, and anxiety pills, and that's why they end up with more chronic illness. Mm -hmm. Now, men have their own way of suffering, which you can talk about, but th these characteristics normally describe the, the, the disease-prone personality, 
which by the way we'll have to talk about because it's not anybody's real self we're talking about here we're talking about their assumed personality but they also describe how women are acculturated in society mm-hmm. let's talk about this idea of disease and yeah. your very sort of i guess humanistic or this very systems-wide approach this venn diagram that you see around sure certainly there's biology and maybe there's a genetic predetermination for a lot of these things that we pathologize no no, no, no. let's but, make, let's make a distinction there are very few diseases for for which there's a genetic predetermination predetermination so okay. so, so one of them runs in my family muscular dystrophy mm. it's genetically passed on if you have the gene you're going to have the disease my brother, I'm sorry, my mother had it, my aunt had it. Relatives of mine who have it, the gene, they have the disease. A predisposition, however, is not the same as a predetermination. Mm. A predisposition doesn't have to turn into disease. It depends on the circumstances. Right. So there are very few diseases that are genetically predetermined. No mental illness is, is amongst them. And no autoimmune disease is amongst them. Right. So even when there are predispositions, which only mean that it's more likely that something will happen, it still depends on the environment to turn those genes on or off or to activate them or inactivate them. But and in your model, I mean, there's clearly like a huge environmental factor, social factors that are affecting our health. I mean, that seems to be the, the predominant yeah. muscle, right, in your model. Yeah. And that many times things that we call quote or quote disease or pathologize are actually completely understandable and reasonable responses to what's happened to us in our lives, like addiction or other things that we would call mental disease. Addiction or multiple sclerosis for that matter, or rheumatoid arthritis, or any of the conditions that we call mental illness. And when we talk about disease, there's a kind of interesting language that itself betrays an ideological bias. So I can talk about somebody having multiple sclerosis, or in my case, I've been diagnosed with, therefore I can say I have ADHD, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, or I have had, I have had depression, or I have rheumatoid arthritis, or somebody has cancer, or so they have it. Now, there's a hidden assumption in that way of languaging things. And this is a subtle one, but it's a crucial one to recognize. So here's, Here's my cell phone. I have my cell phone. You and I are on video, so you can see that I have a cell phone. I can put the cell phone down. I can pick it up. I can sell it. I can destroy it. I have it. It's not me. When I say I have depression or I have ADHD or I have multiple sclerosis, the assumption is that there's disease entity. Then there is me. And the me that exists has that entity that the disease represents just like I have a cell phone. In other words, the disease is an independent existence for me. Mm-hmm. It's not how it works. How it works is, as I show extensively in this book, that diseases are processes that manifest what happens in our lives. We don't have them. There's no separation between our lives and chronic illness. But the chronic illness represents our lives. It doesn't interrupt our lives. It manifests our lives. It manifests what happened to us in the uterus, in early childhood, and how we've lived our life ever since. 
which also means that if you recognize that whether we're talking about depression or ADHD or multiple sclerosis, if you recognize that these are not independent entities, but processes that reflect how we live our lives, it also means if we start living our lives differently, that mm -hmm. is to say, if we understand ourselves and we transform our relationship to ourselves, that process can change, which gives the individual much more agency because the average person that goes to a, a physician with depression, they'll say, you've got this thing called depression and here's a pill that's going to change the biology of your brain. That may or may not work in itself, not a bad thing, but you're mm -hmm. not affecting the process as such. You go to a neurologist with multiple sclerosis. Now, umpteen study after study has shown that multiple sclerosis is much more likely in people who have childhood trauma, who live stressed lives, who have difficulty saying no, who, who are faced with challenges they can't handle. One could go on and on and on, multiple research on this, but the average neurologist will not ask the average patient, any trauma in your childhood? Mm. Any stress in your life right now? How do you feel about yourself as a human being? How well do you take care of your emotional needs? What's your relationship to your partner, spouse, friend? How do you feel about your work? What does your boss like to work with? These are essential questions when it comes to the answer of multiple sclerosis shown in multiple studies. And yet these questions are not asked. In other words, the MS or the ADHD or the depression are manifestations of life events. And they're processes. They're not independent things. Nobody has them. People, right. People manifest them. So what would be the right language? Because then there's sort of the other extreme, which is I am an addict or I am autistic. I think now the languaging on that has changed. Well, what but it, well, so it, like saying I am cancer, right? So what yeah. is the appropriate way to relate, relate yourself to the stage or process? So I'm an addict is useful as shorthand, but it's not useful to understand anything. Mm. Shorthand doesn't express the richness of reality. So I'm an addict means that I'm a human being who suffered a lot in life and I carry a lot of emotional pain from which I try to escape in certain behaviors that are compulsive, that cause me harm, but I can't give them up because I have so much pain, I keep looking for relief. Now, what if you outlawed the word addict and every time you spoke about a person who's quote unquote an addict, you had to say that whole sentence. So-and-so is a human being who suffers so much in life hmm. that they need to, they believe they need to escape into this behavior or substance in order to soothe their pain. That change of language would change the whole conversation. Yeah. But it goes beyond. And, and this is where it's so frustrating I'm not talking theory here. I'm talking about science. So both when it comes to multiple sclerosis and when it comes, for example, or when it comes to addiction, science has amply shown the truth of what I'm talking about. So when I talk about the medical practice, it's not that it's not scientific. It's that it ignores the important aspects of the science that we already have. Why do you think that that happens? Is it just we're not trauma-informed, even though it's such a buzzword now, or... There's an intentional disavowal? It's much more complex than that. First of all, the average physician doesn't hear a single lecture on trauma throughout the years of education. Even though mm -hmm. trauma shows up in virtually every chronic conditions they have to deal with, whether malignancy or autoimmune disease or so-called mental illnesses, they don't get a single lecture. Right. Or if they're lucky, they'll get a single lecture. 
where they need where they, where they need to be grounded in it thoroughly number one but why is that well for one thing the mind body unity in other words the inextricable oneness of mind and body that you can't separate the two has been more than adequately abundantly demonstrated scientifically but the average physician doesn't hear a word about it right now why is that number of reasons number one we live in a society that is materialistic whose view of human beings is basically materialistic whose view of human beings is that what we're really after is material goods and the more we produce and the more consume the happier we are furthermore the intention of the economy is to make a profit now no matter how you do it so it doesn't matter what kind of poisonous product you sell people if you make a profit you're a genius right so, so if i deliberately go out and concoct junk foods in order to make people addicted which people do this is documented i'm just not conspiracy it's reality or if i sell pharmaceuticals that i know are harmful but will make me a huge profit or if i create products that will degrade the environment but would make a huge profit i'm a marketing or or or, or corporate genius but in order to do that i have to forget that people are not just material beings they're spiritual beings they're emotional beings and when i treat them as material beings i'm trampling on their true nature mhm mm now that's the dominant ethic in this society that's why i call it a toxic culture the major institutions of any society will reflect the ruling ideology therefore medicine right. medicine reflects the ruling ideology yeah then there's the fact that doctors are traumatized people medical training for a lot of people is very traumatic and you can talk to any number of conscious physicians who will tell you how they suffered through medical school and how they had to suppress their authentic feelings and uh, cells in order to get through well if that's how you're trained that's how you're going to treat people that's how you're going to see people yeah then there is the overweening influence of the pharmaceutical companies who drive most of the research they're not interested in the mind body unity they're interested in the biology that they can manipulate through pharmaceuticals which sometimes can be miraculously good but at the same time they're a very one track way of looking at human beings yeah then there's the fact that if you average ego bound physician when you spend 30 years practicing one way you're not going to all of a sudden wake up to the fact that my god i got the whole thing wrong <laughs> or my god <laughs> my vision has been narrow and there's much more to this there's much more in this heaven and earth uh, horatio than our philosophy dreams of as hamlet said in in the shakespeare play so people are just defending their turf so there's there's all yeah. kinds of reasons no and it's it's so nebulous it's difficult to fix and and going to you know medical school being traumatizing but also it's traumatic to be you know the end of the book when the shaman when you are in peru and the shaman is like the the darkness you're with a, a bunch of doctors yeah. and the the energy that you guys all carry i mean my dad's a doctor an intensivist he's retired now but like he was present for a lot of death you know yeah. and a lot of physical trauma right yeah. which is how i think 
you know, car accidents, etc. And so that's hard, particularly because culturally, we don't have a process at all on any level of society for emotional hygiene or processing what we experience and the cumulative effects of that have to be deadening and numbing, I would imagine. Well, they are. And and so physicians, once they undergo some kind of a a wake-up experience, whether emotionally or, or spiritually, they will say how numb they had been before mm. and how much better it feels not to be numb anymore mm. and how much more satisfying and, and meaningful their their interactions with their patients become. Yeah. But very little in medical school prepares you for that. No, I'm sure. None of it. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep. Up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample dash policy. Spot pet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. So trauma obviously has become a common word, right? Which is probably good. I'm, I'm curious if there are any, if you have any concerns about people not understanding it, but you make the point throughout the book that... You write, children, especially highly sensitive children, can be wounded in multiple ways, by bad things happening, yes, but also by good things not happening, such as their emotional needs for attunement not being met, not being seen or accepted, et cetera. Well, for example, there's a book, Crib Sheet, which actually tells you. (laughs) So she's an economist and a young mother who looks at all the research. Now, she's got no psychological insight whatsoever, no training in developmental psychology, She's an economist. She looks at statistics and she understands studies through statistics. That's what the book is mm-hmm. called Crip Sheet. And this is a book for parenting, a bestseller, highly touted in the New York Times and the New Yorker. It's a textbook for traumatizing children mm. because it recommends parenting practices that ignore the actual needs of the child. It's all about how to make parenting more convenient for parents in a toxic culture. But if you don't recognize the toxic nature of the culture, then fitting in with the toxic culture is itself toxic. Yeah. So her advice is all about how to make parenting easier in a, in a culture that doesn't support parenting, that doesn't understand the basic needs of the mother and has no idea what the basic needs of the child are. Right. So full of goodwill and well-meaning intention, she promotes parenting practices and practices parenting practices that actually traumatize the child. Mm-hmm. And this is mainstream parenting advice. And these are the books that get touted and, and lionized and, 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 and endlessly podcast and, 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 and written about in the major media. And uh, in the book, I give a, a very specific example of, 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 of this kind of traumatization being depicted on public television and celebrated. So I, at the 2016 Democratic Convention, where Hillary Clinton mm. is nominated for the presidency, 
there's a movie narrated by the voice of God, Morgan Freeman, you know, and about her life. And Hillary says that my parents brought me up to be self-reliant and resilient and so on. You know what happened in reality? Her father beat the shit out of her kids. Mm-hmm. You know, that wasn't talked about. But that's not the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is then she tells an incident that tells, says, this gave me resilience. And you're a mom. The story is that four-year-old Hillary is bullied by neighborhood kids. And she runs into the family home to seek protection from her mother. And the mother says, you get out of here and deal with those kids. There's no room for cowards in this house. Mm. Tens of millions of people watch this. All kinds of commentators watch it. Nobody said that was being celebrated here is the traumatization of a child. Mm-hmm. Is a four-year-old little girl who runs to mommy for protection. Is she a coward? Is that what she is? Right. What's the oh. me- what's the message to the child? I'm asking you. What's the message? To the- oh, the message is your feelings aren't valid. Yeah. You have no right to be scared, and you're an adult. And Go handle it. And you're on your own. Yeah. Okay. And this is now that's traumatizing. That's wounding a child. And this wounding yeah. of a child. Now, trauma means wound, by the way. This wounding of a child is celebrated as something, as a wonderful example of of, of parenting. Sixty odd years later, that four-year-old, now 64 or whatever, however old she was, develops pneumonia Mm. during the election campaign. You remember what she did with that? She kept going until she collapsed. She collapsed publicly in the street. Suck yeah. it up. You're on your own. You have no right to be vulnerable. Is that you don't want any friend of yours to do? Mm-mm. No, certainly not my child. <laughs> not your child or any of your friends. Yeah. You got pneumonia? Keep going. You yeah. Know? So I'm not blaming the individual I'm describing here. I'm talking about a toxic culture. So, yes, children can be wounded in multiple ways. They can be hit like she was, but even if she had never been hit, it's enough that she had that experience. Right. Can you tell us that poignant question that you ask everyone about what, where they went when they felt certain ways as a child? Well, it relates to the incident I just related. Uh, yeah. So they, sometimes people tell me they had this happy childhood. And uh, <laughs> one of your friends, I went through that process with her once, you know, Stephanie. And then I issue what I call the happy childhood challenge, which means let's talk about it for three minutes, shall we? And it doesn't take long. And the key question is, if it's so sad, alone, scared, pain, in emotional pain as a child, yeah, who did you talk to? Oh, I talked to my dog. I talked right. to my I talked to my dolly. Maybe I talked to my brother, if you're lucky. Right. But you didn't talk to your parent. And then I asked people, well, if you if your child felt that way, who would you want them to talk to? Oh, I'd want to talk to me. Yeah. And if they didn't, if they felt that way and they didn't talk to you, how would you understand that? Oh, I'd feel terrible. 
I'm not asking you how you'd feel. I'm asking how would you explain why my child isn't talking to me? Oh, they felt I wasn't there for them. They felt scared. What's it like for a child to have no one to talk to? We're not, we're not talking about severe trauma, big T trauma, abuse, sexual exploitation, violence, anything. We're just talking about being emotionally wounded, bereft. That's enough to traumatize the child. And the more sensitive the child, the greater the trauma, of course. Because when I talk about, I lay out in one of the chapters, what are the core irreducible needs of children? One of them is the full, ex the full experience of all their emotions. Mm. And, being that, and that being received and understood by adults. Yeah. Short of that, the child starts to repress their feelings, disconnect from themselves. And now you get into the realm of dysfunction and pathology. I want to talk about anger and aggression in a minute. But before no. we get to that, can we talk, can you talk about sort of this, the essential need for both attachment and authenticity and how those sure. can sometimes seem to be mutually exclusive for children? Sure. So the need for attachment, which means the closeness, proximity with somebody who you take care of or who takes care of you, that, that's a self-evident need of the human infant and fortunately of the human parent as well. Because parents do have this system in their brains that makes them want to take care of the vulnerable little one. So do orangutans and, 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 and cats have that system in their brains. Thank God, otherwise it, babies would die. Right. So there's that attachment drive on the part of the parent, which is instinct, which is built in by nature, by the way. But like anything else, it can be turned on or turned off. For example, the parent has this need to take care of the child, and it's a biological need, actually. So as somebody says, when a baby's born, a mother is born. Right. But then what happens when you listen to one of these sleep training experts who tell you, at six months of age, your kid should be able to sleep through the night. So next time they cry, don't pick them up. Mm. Have you ever done that, by the way? No. I fortunately had amazing sleepers, but no, yeah, never. Yeah, right. I never had to let them but, cry. But, you, but you've heard about it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, oh, yeah. Now, you talk to moms and dads who tried to do that, who, or who did do it, and you ask them, what did you feel as your child was screaming for you? My heart was breaking. Mm -hmm. My own mother writes that in her diary, Gabor, my poor little Gobi, my heart is breaking for you because you've been crying to be fed for the last hour and a half, but I promised the doctor I wouldn't pick you up till two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. So it goes against the parenting instinct, but the parenting instinct has to be evoked by the environment. And what we're actually telling people in this culture is to shut down their parenting instincts. Then there's the attachment need of the child to be taken care of, and that's an obvious one. Because we thought that not just in the physical sense of being fed, but also being held emotionally and physically. That's why the baby's crying. Because they're expressing their biological need. The biopsychological need to be held. So that need for attachment, for connection, closeness, that's clear. Then we have this other need, which I already talked about, which is the, the need to be able to feel what we feel. So I call that authenticity, being able to feel and experience what's happening for us. Now, yeah. why is that a need as well? Where did we evolve? We evolved out in nature. 
millions of years, we lived there out there in nature until a blink of an eye ago, we lived out there in nature. Just how long do we survive if we're not in touch with our gut feelings out in nature? Not long. Not very long. <laughs> and that's what I call authenticity, the capacity to feel what we feel, which, as I said, is an essential need of the child. No, great. But what happens when an infant feels the need for attachment and is crying to get the attachment, which if you're a mother cat or mother orangutan, you'll immediately run to the infant and comfort them. But if you're a human mother or father and you listen to the stupid experts, you won't. Mm -hmm. Now, what does the child need? Learn that my feelings don't matter. And it's so painful not to be picked up and to be connected with that they start disconnecting from their authentic feelings. So that in order to maintain their attachment relationships, they have to disconnect from authenticity. Or if a two-year-old is told over and over again and punished for having anger, which is a healthy emotion, it's just a basic emotion. But if they're given the message that they're not acceptable because they're given a timeout, you know, you're not acceptable to me if you're angry. You're only acceptable to me when you're not angry. The child to maintain the attachment will sacrifice the authenticity. And then we spend our lives not being ourselves, not even knowing who we are until life starts just knocking on the head through relationships that don't work or through physical illness or through mental illness. And then there's the splitting that can often happen, right? And in, in more maybe extreme disconnection where rather than a child perceiving that their parent might be failing or might be bad or might in, might also be traumatized and incapable of connecting to their feelings, the child assumes that responsibility. Well, no two-year-old can possibly understand the parent's state of mind. Right. The, the capacity to understand and empathize with, let alone to have compassion for the states of another, the mind states of another human being. That takes maturation and development. It just doesn't happen in early age. So in early childhood, the child can recognize theoretically that my parents just are incapable of loving me the way I need to be loved. Poor people, they're just limited by their own trauma. <laughs> <laughs> or the child can assume, but basically they're not available. Right. The child can assume that unconsciously, but the child can assume there's something wrong with me. I'm flawed. And maybe if I work hard enough, I can fix it. Now, which is the safer belief for the child? The latter, unfortunately. The latter, yeah, the, the first one is an undurable. So the, la the latter, the belief in our own unworthiness becomes the defense mechanism. And then we carry it throughout our whole lives. And this society is brilliant at exp exploiting people's sense of insufficiency. Hence, the $50 billion or whatever billion dollar plastic surgery industry, all the products that are designed to enhance our image, all the products that are designed to make us feel more in control, more powerful, buy this car, buy that dress, get this Botox injection, and then you'll be acceptable and you'll be powerful and whatever. All because long ago, we gave up our sense of self-worth. Mm. 
But and it also seems to, particularly maybe for women, instill this idea of over-responsibility and hypervigilance that you can somehow guard against disconnection. You're responsible how, for how your mother feels. It's you, right? So, and, um, and later on, you're responsible for how your spouse feels. Right. It hurts. <laughs> not, not to make the conversation too personal. We're talking... Not about anybody in particular here. We're talking about a general dynamic. But, you know, during the COVID crisis, the New York Times had an article. I quote this article. It's called Society Shock Absorbers. Mm -hmm. And how women took on the stress of the COVID. And they took on the responsibility of keeping their husbands and their children happy. And if it wasn't going well, they blamed themselves. Right. So this role is deeply ingrained in, in women in particular. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen Maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com P-T-T. Let's change gears a little bit and talk about addiction because your reframe of addiction, not as a disease, mm -hmm. really, is so powerful. I think it's so humane. And as you say, ask not why the addiction, but why the pain. Yeah. And that addiction is really like a very helpful device for people who cannot function, right? By definition, any addiction is helpful in the short term and harmful in the long term. But so to give you my definition of addiction, it's manifested in any behavior 
that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in and therefore craves, but suffers negative consequences as a result of and cannot give up. So short-term pleasure, relief, craving, long-term harm, inability to give it up. That's what an addiction is. That could be to substances. It could also be to relationships. It could be to work, to gambling, to eating, to shopping, to gaming, to any number of human activities. It's a big tent, as you say. It's a huge tent, yeah. And in this society, there's a book called When Society is an Addict, you know, mm. published in the 1990s, I think, or 1980s. In this society, it's rife with addictions. Now, the, then the next question is not what's wrong with the addiction, but what's right about it. So this whole idea that addiction is a choice that people make, which is utter nonsense, you know, just say no. I, I, I don't have enough contempt to even expend a minute on that idea. But, it's, but the whole legal system is based on it. The legal system is based on the stupidity that people are choosing to be addicted. And I can tell you, no, no addict I've ever worked with, and I've worked with many. I was in my work as a medical doctor for years, ever chose to become an addict. Nobody chose right. it. Number one, number two, that it's an inherited brain disease as well. Let's just look at it. So at least I gave you this definition of addiction. Just tell me if according to that definition, I'm not going to ask for what, when, or how long. According to that division, definitely, have you ever had an addictive pattern in your life? Yes. Okay. Again, I'm not, not going to ask you what it was. I'm just going to ask you, what was right about it? What did it do for you? What did it give you in the short term? Calmed me down. It calmed me down. Okay. Distracted inner, me. So inner, <laughs> distracted you from what? From whatever I was feeling, from my feelings. So some painful feeling states. Yeah. Okay. So is inner peace and pain relief a good thing or a bad thing? It's a wonderful thing. Yes. In other words, the addiction wasn't your primary problem. It wasn't any kind of a brain disease. What it was, was your attempt to solve the problem of emotional pain. Right. That, that you had not been given the resources to deal with as a child. Therefore, the question, not why the addiction, but why the pain. And, and, and for that, you have to look at people's lives. And as I've pointed out, it's always rooted in childhood experience. So the addiction it comes along as an attempted solution that creates more problems in its wake. But its primary role is to solve a problem. So what kind mm -hmm. of a disease solves the problem? Not a disease. It's not a disease, folks. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a coping mechanism in response to trauma. That's what it is. Right. And it has, you know, we look at the people with substance abuse who are on streets and we wag our fingers and shake our heads. And then we celebrate the addicts who are more like me, where I use work to avoid and numb. Yeah. And I know you suffer from workaholic tendencies and yet i'm supported for that celebrated for it oh yeah sure venerated and if you're addicted to power and self-aggrandizement you become president of the united states right and you can't give it up and even when yeah. you lose it you believe that they stole it from you right you know because we because you really you need it and uh i'm not making fun of anybody here i'm saying that's a traumatic imprint is what we're seeing Oh, yes, for sure. Yeah. So having worked with, you know, in, in deeply addicted and traumatized populations throughout your career, and really, I think, understanding, and then also the, the sort of going back to how we opened the conversation, this idea that there's a gene, right? And you mm. 
um, aggressively dispute this idea that we'll ever find a gene for addiction. I mean, I think we could all say we're all addicted, right? So we all have the same well, gene, uh, but... Yeah, and the question yeah. is? The question is, how how do we, besides trauma, is it tra- trauma-informing an entire culture and prison system, et cetera? Is that the antidote? Well, so first of all, as to genes... I'm only saying, simply stating a scientific fact. Nobody has any, ever identified any particular gene that causes any particular mental health condition. Right. Nobody has ever identified any group of genes that taken together will necessarily cause any mental health conditions. Nobody has identified any group of genes that if you don't have them, you cannot have a mental health condition. What they have discovered at best is a large nebulous group of genes that the more you have them, the more likely you have to have any number of mental health conditions, mm. but nothing specific. Some people with the same set of genes will have ADHD, somebody else with schizophrenia. Right. Which means diseases aren't inherited. What's inherited are sensitivities. And the more sensitive you are, the more hurt you're going to be when things go wrong in the environment. So it's the environment that determines how any set of genes will declare itself. And we know in trauma is an inherited, in some ways, an inherited disease, right? And trauma is not a disease. Trauma is not a disease at all. It, it, it's it's like if you cut yourself with a knife, you can't say that the knife cut is a disease, right? It's an effect of being cut with a knife. So the trauma is a wound that you sustain. Now trauma can be passed on from one generation to the next, partly through epigenetic acti- activity, not genetics, but how the genes are activated or not. Part of that can be passed on, but mostly it's passed on through people repeating traumatizing patterns from one generation to the next. So the next generation grows up traumatized. Now, in terms of addressing it, let's take the prison population, which many, many studies have shown is a highly traumatized population, extremely so. Traumatized not only in the individual, personal, and multi-generational sense, traumatized racially, mm-hmm. traumatized through poverty. Throw all that together, you've got the template for drug-related activity and violence and so on. Now, we have what's called a correctional system. We have what's called the criminal justice system. Well, there's nothing correctional about the system. It doesn't correct anything. It makes things worse by the way we treat people. If the original problem was that as children they were badly treated, now we treat them badly as adults. Why do we expect that to come out with some corrective result? But the name criminal justice system is very accurate. It's a criminal justice system because it hurts people. Hurts people who have already been hurt terribly. Now, what we know from my limited work in prisons, that's very limited, but other people who have done extensive work with even so-called hardened criminals, lifers, you give them a compassionate circle. I could name you several such projects. You give them some self-understanding. You give them group connection. These people open up like flowers. Yeah. They become some of the loveliest people you've ever met. And this is hard for anybody who hasn't been there to see it, but I've been with lifers who are some of the best people I've ever met. And they're not pretending, you know, I'm not that stupid. 
<laughs> no, no, nor do they have much of a reason to uh, many of them to 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 pretend because they're not going to get out of jail anyway. Many of them, right? Because the parole system doesn't believe in these things anyhow. But but other people who have worked with them extensively will tell you the same thing. So that yes, a trauma informed, compassionate, humane approach can actually rehabilitate people. Rehabilitate people. So here's a man in San Quentin who's a lifer. Okay. And he's a typical template of multiple traumas upon traumas, so on. Ends up using drugs, ends up killing somebody at age 19. And so I interviewed him at San, at San Quentin. And he says, this group made me think about my actions and helped me to start running, to stand up and face those inner demons I had always run away from. I've learned to love myself and to know that these are people, there, there are people who care out there. Now, he grew up in a world where nobody cared about him. Mm. So I asked him, what would you want the parole board to know about you? And he says, well, at that time of my life, I was separated from me. I didn't even know who I was. I didn't respect myself, so I couldn't respect no one else. But after doing this time, really stopping and looking at my life as a genuine thing. Imagine that, looking at my life as a genuine thing. Mm. Imagine growing up, not seeing your life as genuine. But he says, and with the love for myself and understanding that for me, love is everything. Love is opening me up to everything outside of me. What I'm doing for myself, learning about me, I'm learning about everyone else too. I'm not different from everybody else. If I'm touched spirit, I'm not separated. If you do let me out of here, this is the kind of work I want to do when I get out. I'm ready. I want to go home. But even if they don't let me go home, I already know who I am and what I want to do. Mm. No. Beautiful. Either he's an incredibly good actor and a wonderful poet, or he's speaking from his heart. And yeah. He was, so that's what's possible. That's what's possible. You have this great line. You say... Nor is healing synonymous with self-improvement. Closer yeah. to the mark would be to say it is self-retrieval. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you. Although the indigenous people talk about soul retrieval. Yeah. That's one of their healing practices is soul retrieval. Because, you know, it's, you know, we lose contact with our souls. We lose contact with ourselves. And so healing is all about, which means wholeness, by the way. It's all about connecting with ourselves. Can we talk a little bit about sort of the spiritual dimension and your work with ayahuasca and, and and shamans in Peru and sort of this other element of understanding who we are and how that has changed or impacted the way you move through the world? Sure. Although I don't want to restrict the spiritual dimension to the psychedelic realm. Right. Because, so the, those are two separate chapters, actually. I do have a chapter on the psychedelic healing, but also another one on, on the spiritual aspects of healing. And for the spiritual healing, psychedelics can be helpful, but they're hardly necessary. No, they're accessible to most people. Fortunately, they don't need to be. So spiritual healing, that sense of belonging to something greater than a little ego, the seeing beyond beyond the lie of the separate solo self, as Dan Siegel says, our oneness with nature. These are indigenous ways that people have always been steeped in. Part of the toxicity of this culture 
is that they cut us off from traditional knowledge. So mm-hmm. we're not necessarily talking about psychedelics. However, having said that, psychedelics, because of their capacity to get the egoic mind out of the way, at least temporarily, do allow us to glimpse deeper aspects of ourselves and, 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 and beyond ourselves. So they can be a powerful ally in the right environment with the right guidance, mm-hmm. with the right holding, or they can be terribly disconcerting, used in the wrong ways with the wrong people. Right. So, because if you can open up your soul and make your psyche more permeable, you better be in a safe environment. Yeah. But they can be powerful, and I've experienced them that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm very grateful for that that I was led to that work quite some years ago now. And I continue to cherish those experiences. Yeah. Having said that, cherishing the experiences and then integrating them into your life, they're not exactly the same thing. And the integration is more important than cherishing. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. I watched The Wisdom of Trauma, mm-hmm. and which was beautiful. And people can find that sort of on the Wisdom of Trauma website. And I thought that that scene, and I like thought it was stunning that 2 million people have watched that documentary. I think you mentioned probably more now. Uh, that, that was in the first week. Now it's been about, by now it's, last time I was told it was about 7 million. That's amazing. Yeah. So everyone should watch it. And I thought the scene with you, and I cannot remember his name, but he has the stage four cancer diagnosis, he's going through the process of cancer. Tim. And he did. Yeah. Bill, is that his name? Tim. Tim. And the way that he, that you held him as he was, you did a psychedelic session with him and the latent, and you could tell, like I knew watching him in the car before he went did through this experience with you that he had a lot of, <laughs> he was so kind, so nice, right? Yeah. And then in that experience, sort of the latent rage and anger was allowed to come up. It's really beautiful to watch that. And can you talk a little bit about how that's connected to, like the, the study that you cited about ALS and the nurses was staggering and the type C cancer personality. Can you talk about like what anger when suppressed does to our health well so let's do an experiment here okay mm-hmm. so if you're willing to be a participant okay yes we're just play acting of course but let, let's say i were to become abusive verbally abusive to right now or inappropriate mm-hmm. what could you do 
in this setting right now, in the present setting, we're talking to each other on Zoom. What would you do? I would be very nice about it. And I would try. I'm not asking what you would do. I'm asking what you could do. Oh, what I could do. Yeah. To protect yourself. Oh, I mean, theoretically, I could exit the Zoom. Could you not? I could. Yeah, not theoretically. (laughs) Practically, you could exit the Zoom. (laughs) You could just say, that's called flight. I'm out of here. Right? Right. Okay. (laughs) What What else could you do? I could... Theoretically, this is would not be my inclination, get aggressive with you back. Couldn't you? You can say, stop it. You're not to talk to me that way. Yes. Theoretically. <laughs> you and I better do some counseling sessions after this is over. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, but you could. You can see how you could do those things, right? Yes. No. When you were telling me to stop it. And you can't talk to me that way. What emotion would you be generating, do you think? Anger. Anger. In other words, anger, healthy anger is nothing but a boundary defense. Right. It says you've crossed a boundary that you're not allowed to. You're in my space. Get out. Either physically or emotionally, but you're in my space. Get out. Healthy anger is a boundary defense. Mm -hmm. Okay. No. In fact, the role of the emotional system is to set up a boundary against that which is dangerous and unwelcome and to allow in that which is nurturing. Hmm. Some people you're going to set up a boundary with. Other people, the boundary will be much more permeable. You want them close. You want them in. You know? That's the role of the emotional system is to distinguish that which is healthy and nurturing and welcome from that which is toxic and dangerous, right? Is that clear enough? Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, a trick question. What's the role of the immune system? The same. Exactly the same. To keep up what's unhealthy and toxic and to allow in which is nurturing and and, uh, life-sustaining. Now, it so happens the two systems are not two systems. It's one system. That scientifically speaking, they're part of the same apparatus, different aspects of the same apparatus. And there's myriad ways in which physiologically they're connected to the nervous system, through hormones, chemicals, and so on and so forth. Therefore, when you're repressing that healthy anger, you're also disabling the immune system. Mm. This has been shown scientifically. So the immune system can now fail to protect you against, say, malignant transformation or bacteria, or can actually turn against you, like suppressed anger turns against you. And now the immune system attacks you. Now you've got autoimmune disease. So the repression of healthy anger, which makes you this very nice personality, it has been studied up to yin-yang as a risk factor for disease, is that, that extreme niceness is a risk factor, not because it's bad to be nice, but because the extreme niceness very often represents the repression of healthy anger. Mm-hmm. And that increases the risk for prostate cancer, for breast cancer, for autoimmune disease, and so on, and so on, and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's how it works, because it's the same system. Yeah. Which also means... Like the first chapter of the book opens with the story of this woman with breast cancer who was told that statistically you got two years to live. 
and she had small children that she wanted to raise to be adults. And so she says to the doctor, she says, I was very rude to the doctor. I said, yeah, what did you say? She said, I said, fuck your statistics. I said, that probably, <laughs> that probably helped to save your life. And she lived another two decades. Because for the first time she expressed healthy anger. She'd been one of these really nice people accommodating to everybody else. So we're not talking theory here. We're actually talking about health yeah. and what can, what can make a difference. Yeah. And that paper that the Cleveland Clinic doc neurologist presented about yeah. ALS and the nurse's ability to write, they just talk to someone and be like, this person can't have ALS, they're too mean. And this person is nice. I'm worried they have ALS. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and they're staggering, very unscientific method, but their ability to identify. The ALS risk is very high. And there's been more studies since then that showed that most neurologists see the ALS patients as extraordinarily nice. Mm -hmm. They just don't make the connection that what they're looking at is the rigid repression of anger, which mm -hmm. contributes to the onset of the disease. ALS patients who learn how to express anger live longer, according to other studies. Yeah. So we're not talking vague theory here. And then, of course, when you look at ALS, there are people who actually, even after decades, will have the disease completely go away. Really? Oh, yeah, that's been studied too. There's been a number <sighs> of such cases. But look at Stephen Hawking. He, he was diagnosed at age 21. He was given two years to live. Right. He died in his 70s. Right. Not without the disease, but he sure had a long, much longer life than the doctors predicted for him because the disease isn't a thing. It's a process. It's a process. And that process reflects how you live your life. Yeah. So I think we should close with your, your two-question self-inquiry exercise because it's very much related if to... I remember, if I remember it, I'll, I'll, we can close with it. I have it if you forget oh, oh, it. But oh, the... Uh, yeah. One, in my life's important areas, what am I not saying no to? And two, yeah. how does my inability to say no impact my life? Yeah. Oof. So when you don't say no, that's your inability to set a boundary. That's your inauthenticity. That's when you, when you surrendered your authenticity as a child. And by the way, we have to emphasize over and over again that these personality traits that you recounted and this not saying no, these are not faults. These were brilliant coping strategies as a child. Trouble is they outlived their usefulness and now they cause harm. Mm -hmm. And so where have you not said no? Where are you not saying no? In work, in personal relationships. And, and then what's the second question? Of, of where did you How write? does it affect oh, your oh, life? What, what is the impact of you not saying no? Yeah. So, so this is part of an exercise in one of the chapters. But there's a number of questions. These are the first two. There's a third very important. There's, there's three other questions. I'm not going to go through them now. But oh yeah. But but there's a the final one is where in your life are you not saying yes? Where there's a yes that wants to be said. Mm -hmm. Where there's some desire for self-expression or creativity or way of being that you're stifling because you're trying to stay in attachment relationship rather than being yourself. So where are you still choosing attachment over authenticity? if the two are in conflict. Now, ideally, we'll form relationships with partners and spouses and families and friends where we can have both authenticity and attachment. Mm. But if that's not possible, this is the challenge for all of us. What are we gonna choose? 
Are we still going to choose the attachment? Or are we going to go for authenticity? And I'll tell you, health-wise, we pay a huge price if we go for the attachment by surrendering authenticity. And so as we say in the book, the loss of authenticity, inauthenticity may not have been a choice to the child. It's not like they had a choice in the matter. But authenticity can be a choice to the mm. adult. So powerful. And it's as you write somewhere in the book, when I was citing those behavior characteristics, like no child is, is born perfectionistic and other directed and... Well, have um, you ever, have you ever, you've had children. Uh, then if your infants at one day of age lie there thinking, gee, I, I'm hungry and, and I'm tired and I need to be held, but mommy must be so busy and my God, I don't want to bother her. So I, I think I'm not going to cry right now. I right. mean, nobody's born like that. You right. know? So these are compensatory coping mechanisms that develop to protect their attachments when those attachments can't accept us exactly the way we are. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was amazing. It's amazing, to be, it's amazing to be interviewed by somebody who's read the book so closely, you know, <laughs> such a pleasure. Cause I tell you, it's really satisfying. Cause I spent, <laughs> I'm going to break down and cry here. I'm not going to complain here, but I spent 10 years on this thing, you know, Yeah. helping me to talk about the important points in it. So I'm very grateful. can't tell I'm a huge Gabor fan and he has played a really important role in my life and in my family's life and his book is such a gift and service so I know I um, left everyone hanging with the self-inquiry exercise by only listing the first two questions so I'm going to give you the rest but again this is sort of a healing bible that I think you'll refer to again and again. So please pick up a copy. Question one, in my life's important areas, what am I not saying no to? Question two, how does my inability to say no impact my life? Three, what bodily signals have I been overlooking? What symptoms have I been ignoring that could be warning signs were I to pay conscious attention? Four, what is the hidden story behind my inability to say no? Five, where did I learn these stories? And then six, where have I ignored or denied the yes that wanted to be said? Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. 
I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.